Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't know. Hello. Is this thing on? Yeah, I think it's on. I think it's on. Um, this is good news. We don't have time for all that music. Hey, it's Jake. It's episode 168. It's late. I get it. It's late, everyone. And it's my fault. It's not your fault. It's my fault. But I have a guest. I'm, I'm on the other side of the earth. Maybe that's the problem. I think it's okay. The speed of light is that I think that's set. But I am on the other side of the earth, so let's pretend that it's taken an, an extra week for this to get there. And I have a guest. I have a guest. I'm in Australia, and I have a guest, Nish Kumar. Hello. And that's him. That's what he sounds like. <laughs> He's a comedian from uh, Britain, and I just saw his show last night, and it's awesome to be here and make new friends and see, see new comics who are awesome that I didn't even know before. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. That's very nice of you to say. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 pretty cool. And uh, I one of the things that I've been talking about on the podcast, maybe I'll keep the headphones in, um, is that uh, for me this is new territory doing these festivals. Sure. So, so maybe as a start off, kind of describe. We were just talking about it at lunch, but kind of describe your year, like where you're at in your year. You're doing this festival now, and you're getting ready for Edinburgh. Yeah, I'm on a I'm on a kind of cycle, which means that I write a new show every year for the Edinburgh Festival, which is in August. And so that's like the debut of that show. And so my, my last 12 months was I wrote a show for Edinburgh uh, last August, did it in Edinburgh, then toured it around the UK, filmed it, and now I'm in Melbourne essentially like flogging a dead horse, like really just really wringing the last ounces of moisture out of a sponge which has been well wrought. Oh, well, that's not what it seemed like. That's not what it seemed like I was watching last night, man. Yeah. I didn't think I was watching a dead horse beating. But this is the end, this is the end of a show cycle. And so from here, I'll go to uh, Auckland for a festival in New Zealand. And that's where I'll be trying to work out I'll be taking all of the pieces that I've got. I've got a bunch of like screwed up bits of paper with single words written on it, and I'll be trying to turn that into a show for a couple of weeks. And so you'll still be doing a little bit of of what you've been doing here and kind of putting the other stuff in, or or is it just complete? It's kind of tricky because I actually did. I started working this show through in Auckland last year, so I started in New Zealand with it. So this I'm, this new one, yeah, this new one, yeah. So I, I mean, no, sorry, this. The one, one that I'm you're doing on now. in Melbourne, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they always get to. It's not they good see to be the, a kiwi. Yeah, it's not good to be a kiwi. They see the absolute. I mean, optimistically, you describe it as fresh, uh, but realistically, you described it as uh, undercooked. Well, to be fair, they're so proud about getting the new day before anyone else. Yeah. They're so proud of it that that's where the new year starts is New Zealand and so this is just right in harmony with that I feel like I hadn't thought of it in that way it's it's absolutely correct they get the they have all the bonuses of seeing the new day in first but they have all the negatives of watching yeah. English comedians amble through some half written material well but they're also very far they should be grateful that you even bothered <laughs> it's a long way they, hi, the, hi Australia, or New Zealand listeners. the worst oh, thing is when you make that mistake. the worst thing is they are uh, they love it. They they all the audiences there seem to really get the whole process mm-hmm. and seem to quite enjoy being part of the early stages of a new show. Well, it's interesting that you say that just because I feel like that to me describes the difference between my experience of doing clubs, comedy clubs and, and gigs in America yeah. and doing these festival dates. And, and even last summer when I was at the Soho Theater, yeah. it seems like the audiences are kind of ready to let you um, 
do your thing and they're not judging you they're not trying to jump in and you know take over yeah because i think like it there's a there's there's two parallel circuits for comedy in the uk and there is a whole club circuit and a whole weekend club circuit and that is very much you got to get up there you got to really bash out the gags you got to keep them focused because they are so drunk that their attention is wavering persistently. Uh, and then uh, there's uh. the other comedy fans who would go to something like Edinburgh or go to their local art centre or go to like a comedy club that has touring shows go through it and they would seek out people doing an hour. And, and so it's not uncommon for people to go and just see a comedian do an hour show. No, it isn't. There's a, there, there's a kind of... like I mean, you know, I can get... 70, 80 people to come out in an English town and watch me and I am very much in the infancy of my career there Yeah. and so there are just people who especially because I just the tour that I did was the first UK tour I've ever done and it was amazing that people were coming out you know I mean it's you know it's not huge numbers but in 50, 60, 70 people which is a nice crowd and they're keen to watch they're not expecting you to they'll watch they will watch something develop over you know, I do two. I do both halves. I didn't have an opening act, so it was just me doing half an hour and then an interval and then a full hour. And people like. Oh, so it's a ninety-minute show because that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Right? Because here at the festival, they come and see us, and, and we're doing an hour show, but yeah. it's in the context of a night where they might be seeing three or four shows. That's so right. Yeah. You could be the opening act. You could be the middle act. You could be the closer on anyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Night. Yeah. Well, I guess what. Where my showtime is, I get to be the opener, which is nice, low-pressure spot. <laughs> Loving it. But you could never tell, because some people might be going to see their first thing at night of the night. That's one of the tricky things about festivals, is you're working with a room who are at different points in their evening. So mm-hmm. for some people, you're the first thing that they've seen, so they're easing their way into it. Other people are good and warmed up, and other people are frankly bored of comedy. So that's the exciting thing, is that you have to try and unify people who are at different points in their evening. Well, you've got a nice sweet spot. I'm on at 7.15, so technically I think there's a six, there's some, there's some right, 6 there's o'clock some shows. Six o'clock shows yeah. And you're on at 8.30. That's so right, yeah. I don't know, I'm assuming you've done different spots in the night. Is this a favourite? Yeah, I, I, 8.30 is... I enjoy that time. I think sometimes any later... Not in Melbourne, I must say... But sometimes in Edinburgh, if you were on after sort of nine, half nine, you start to get the drunks in. You start, these people start yeah, to be yeah. a little bit too loose. Yeah. Um, and if you've got the sort of act where you can handle that, then that's great. But I just, I can't be bothered with it. <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing too, watching different people and, and how their acts are. And I, I, don't, I always hate it when people ask me how I would describe my act. Yeah. But uh, I feel like your act's... In America, they might call it political, but it's sort of it's sort of about society. Yeah, kind of. it's kind of it's it is political, but it's like it's all got to be long lead stuff, you know, because these shows have to have a six month life cycle. It can't be this week in the news, this week in the news, because otherwise you get into a situation where you're like, "Hey guys, do you remember last uh, September when this stuff was happening and was still relevant?" So yeah, it's got to can... be like you've got to try and pick out big themes from the news that are about bigger issues, or at least I find I have to anyway. You have to pick out, like, bigger issues that are going to be relevant for a longer period of time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, are you loving the the, tra- the travel of it? I mean, to me, to be down here for this length of time, I just can't imagine going, f- 
you're going to go not back to Britain after this. You're going on to New Zealand for yeah. how many weeks? Uh, another three weeks. And so were you in Adelaide before this? No, no, I wasn't. No, I'm do- I'll have done. I'll have done eight weeks in yeah. Australia and New Zealand cumulatively. I think that's about that's at my outer limits of how long I can be away for. I think, but it's fun. It is funny. Really well, look, fun. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm loving being down here and hanging out, making new friends. And, yeah. You know, and that we live in this hotel, <laughs> whatever it is. It's not really, it's like a hotel, but they're like apartments. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They, I think they're called service departments, but it's just this a single hotel in Melbourne is entirely occupied by comedians for a month. It is a summer camp. I feel there are probably some other people who just wound up <laughs> accidentally in here. But it does feel a bit like we're all on, on summer camp. I was in the uh, you know the hotel, the restaurant thing in this morning, and some of the com- comics were talking about, we should have a, we should have a hotel day part, room party. <laughs> and I, was, I didn't know what to say because it's like, yeah, that kind of sounds good, but I feel like that's how we get thrown out of this hotel. <laughs> I think... They, this hotel has been used for a long time, and I think their threshold for what constitutes bad behaviour has yeah. been really raised. <laughs> I haven't seen too much yet this year. No, I mean... We, I, feel, I would say the other night in your room when we were in there with Dave and we were drinking wine, that yeah, was a yeah. late night of talking, but I don't think we were bothering anyone. No, I don't anyone. think we were bothering anyone. I think the uh, by a sort of coincidence of the scheduling... A lot of the uh, geekier English comics uh, have arrived here, so we're not we're not the biggest party animals from the British comedy scene. Um, so I think for us, like yeah, a, a few bottles of wine and a nice chat. Yeah, that was my that was my speed time. of a yeah. kind of a debauched <laughs> debauched night of like oh I had to take the elevator back down to my room. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. This is great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how. What's it? What's it like though when you get home after that long of a time and you're trying to merge back with your uh, friends and? Yeah, it takes a little bit of. Uh, it takes a sort of little bit of readjustment only because it, like it's such an isolating job um, when we're in our home countries because we sort of travel to different places and you don't get to like hang out with your friends very often. So the nice thing about this is you come and you're all in the same city and you're all on roughly the same schedule and there's something there's something nice about that. It does take a, a second of readjustment when you get back mm-hmm. but yeah just take a second uh do you, and what's what's the how do you when you win as a festival comedian when you get to the place where it's just like yeah this is this is what i've been working towards what is it what does that look like like who's somebody here who's got that spot or that gig or that you spot i mean obviously there's guys like will anderson who's a star here yeah of course who's doing yeah. a giant theater and yeah. big shows every night but but that's that's kind of obviously overkill, smash success. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I like I like um, I think someone like David David O'Doherty has yeah. carved out a sweet spot for himself. Like in terms of he can tour the UK and then come here and do a month and have a, have nice shows. And he has people who will come out and see him in Australia in a substantial amount of in numbers that means it's worthwhile him coming sort of every year every other yeah, year yeah well he's in a place that seats like, what did he say 500 something like that people, yeah, yeah yeah it's a big room and yeah. he, he, he he's he's big out here and that's and not just 507 people one time no, that's, that's like 22 shows yeah it's crazy and he does a similar sized room in Edinburgh for another 25 shows so he's really got that you know kind of international network 
of fans that he can sort of tap into. And it, it comes from hard work and writing really good shows and just coming back year on year with an even better show. I've seen his last three or four shows and he's not sort of resting on his laurels. And each time he comes back with a better show and a better show than that and a better show. So yeah, to keep I turning think, over all that time. Yeah. You know, that's it's amazing. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. And that he and that then you see him downstairs and he's going to go play soccer. Or yeah. He's got a, He's doing a kids show. He's doing some kids shows <laughs> yeah, yeah, while he's here. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. How, what are you doing having wine late at night with us? You can't do that. I can barely do it and do what I'm doing. <laughs> You're going to entertain the kids. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing kids shows though too. Yeah, I did a kids gig today. Now, how did you get started doing that? Well, just I I can't even remember. In, I just do a couple. I started doing a couple of them in England. Like there's a couple of stand up gigs specifically for kids, and I think I thought it would be an interesting thing to do. Just I, you know, in Edinburgh, you get offered these weird things, and you always say yes to them because it's always a new experience and it's always something that's going to push you and challenge you. And the kids' gigs are, are fun, but they're hard work. They're, I'm more nervous about the 10 minutes I have to do in front of children tomorrow than the hour show I have to do tonight. And do you write a show for the I've got kids? a specific set for kids, yeah. Although I do have one story that is my, like, it's the thing that I used to close really rowdy clubs in the UK, and it's about this drunk guy I saw on a train. And I can tell that story to really drunk English people and children. And so I don't know what that says about the mentality of those two groups. That they Oh, I feel like I feel like you do know. <laughs> I feel like you do know. There's a sweet spot between drunk English men and children. And that I feel like is a compliment to drunk English men. Because <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a childlike wonder. I think there's a lot of drunk American men that yeah. you can't the story that you have to tell them is not a story that you can tell the children. <laughs> Yeah, agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I think that would be fun. I think it'd be fun to do kids shows. What, do you have kids? Or do you, no, I don't. No, kids? no. You're not married, well, right? I have, no, I'm not married. And I don't have children. But I mean, I, I spent a bit of time around like my uncle's kids. And yeah. I, I think that they're, those two, they, they actually live in Australia. So I've been with them the whole weekend. And I think it's um, those two are my, like I, they're the people I test out my kids material on. And it's really interesting because you forget that kids, you forget when you stop being a kid that kids are really weird and have a really odd sense of humour and it's sometimes hard to predict what they're going to laugh at. And I remember I've done how would like, you say How would you describe it? I mean, I have a kid, so I, I feel like I sort of you know would, what you mean, so but you I'd like would, to hear you kind of articulate it. Just kid, because it'll be entertaining to me to watch you struggle now for a little bit. <laughs> Kids' sense of humour is always more abstract than you think. Yes. There's always something, there's an element of surrealism that I think gets forgotten a, a lot of the time when adults try and write stuff for children. And I did these um, workshops. My friend's a teacher and they have like a comedy club at her school. And she said, will you come and do something with these kids where you perform and you watch them do sketches that they've written? And it, again, it's just one of the things where you go, yeah, of course, that sounds like it's going to be an absolutely fascinating afternoon. And... It was really good fun, and the kids' sketches were so weird. There was just this kind of one sketch, I remember, where it was all these people on a bus, and uh, this one of, the characters one of the characters sort of sat down, and then suddenly all of the characters started just chanting, we are on the bus, we are on the bus, over and over again, for about a minute and a half, and then the sketch ended. 
and you just think that is so weird. It is weird. (laughs) What is going on? And then you look at a show like uh, Adventure Time or the regular show, and you go, "I don't know those shows." They're they're these kids' shows that I've watched with Uh my cousins, and they're really surreal, abstract. They do love some surreal stuff, and even the sophistication of. Now, what age kids are you doing these shows for? Would you say? Well, it's quite a mixed group, so it'll be anything from like five to about ten. Yeah, 10, 11. yeah, yeah. My daughter's eleven now, and she watches this. Uh, I think it's I can't remember, but I think it's called My Little Pony. It's either My Little Pony or My Pretty Pony, or okay. maybe those are the same. But there's a modern version, and then there's an the old one from you know twenty something years yeah, ago. Yeah, the yeah. modern one. The jokes that they do in the modern one are pretty. Like she'll tell me the jokes, and they're they're jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. It's like yeah, that's funny. You're right. <laughs> that's funny. That's really good. Well, and then. Because again, like you sort of get, you have to try and re, you have to try and place yourself back into your own mind when you were that age. I mean, I was about nine or ten. My favourite show was The Simpsons. It was mm. absolutely my favourite show in the world. And I sometimes watch Simpsons episodes that I used to watch when I was a kid. And I just think, I don't know what I was getting out of this. Like this is a, this is a pretty specific satire about media hysteria. I've got no idea what level I was appreciating this on. But it's also jokes on jokes on jokes. Yeah, yeah. And there's a family dynamic. And yeah. some of it's, you know, farty, poopy, slapstick. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I feel like our, our daughter watched The Simpsons, I think, too soon and okay. got turned off of it. Yeah, because yeah. it was too, she could tell it was too grown up and it seemed mean. She was too sensitive to the kind of meanness of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so she hasn't gotten back into it yet. Right. But but I do think that uh, kids will take, they'll layer out whatever it is that they're accessible right. to yeah, and they'll yeah. forget the rest. Yeah. That's what, so I, I'm trying to like, I'm trying not to patronize. I think certainly when I start, started doing these stand-up sets for children, I was patronizing them too much. And assuming that, and they can sort of sniff out. It's like any other audience; they can sniff out dishonesty, yeah. in a way. And so, um, uh, it's yeah. I'm now trying to hit a better level. But it's it's great because it completely throws you off your game because all of the all of the tools that you spend I spent ten years honing to perform to adults are pretty much out of the window, and it's a completely new challenge. And I I I hate it. I hate doing it. And it makes me nervous until I do it. And then Wait, after when's I do your it, next one? Tomorrow? Like, Tomorrow morning. I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> just that description. Just, well, <laughs> maybe I can't. I've got a media thing in the morning. But I'd love, I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I hate, I hate it. It's the, it casts a sort of cloud over my day. I'm actually really, like, what, once tomorrow is over, because I'm, I'm only doing two while I'm here. Once tomorrow is over, I'll be, I would say, about 50% more relaxed. Uh, and okay, so what's the? Do you have a costume that you wear? No, I dress like I do on stage. Like my whole thing is that I try and pretend that I'm really cool and I understand loads of kid stuff. So I try and look as much like an adult as I can, and then spend the whole time explaining to them how I really understand everything that they're going through, and uh, like talk about, but then get everything wrong. So I talk about how Justin Bieber's my favorite member of One Direction, and then I have a whole alternate plot line to Frozen that, so that I'm trying to pretend that I've seen it when I clearly haven't seen it and so uh, it's, yeah. it's like it's it's fun to do that stuff but I, I do just dress exactly as I would normally 
Which last night I saw you were wearing, it was sort of a black suit That's and right, a black yeah, yeah, shirt. Yeah. Black suit and a black shirt, yeah. And then you've got pockets that you pull your notebook out of. It's very rumpled, yeah. professor. Like you, <laughs> it seemed like you were on your way to something else. <laughs> the rumpled professor is that is a hundred percent perfect. That's exactly what I'm going for. Yeah, so, like, well, you're nailing it, man. Like slightly harassed university professor is what I'm constantly trying to achieve. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why it's surprised to hear hear you describing it as flogging a horse because to me last night it had a kind of a spontaneous. Quality that I yeah. thought was, I thought was pretty awesome. Well, I think I think what's happened is just being in a new place and having to work out what works and what doesn't work, and also because it is, you know, a, there are elements of politics in it. It's kind of fun to draw on the local politics, and because we're in Australia, the local politics are full of some absolutely spectacular buffoons. And it's it's a pretty extraordinary political scene out here. You did go hard after them in a way that I was like, are they going to allow that? Yeah, 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 yeah. You you could do it in Melbourne because it, Melbourne doesn't consider itself part of Australia philosophically. Uh-huh. Well, in America, man, if you do if you do politics, it's so like if I'm going to do any political joke in my act, and my act is not political, I the criterion has to be people who disagree with the with the you know, whatever ideas behind it have to be able to laugh. Yeah, it has to be right. funny yeah, to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, you're just going to wind up in an argument with the crowd. And if that's yeah. your thing, if your thing is to go on and do political humor from the point of view of a liberal, well, you were describing, you were saying yeah. there wasn't a conservative. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'd argue that the guy who you mentioned in your show in America, Rush Limbaugh, yeah. is doing a comedy act. It's just yeah, a it's lot of people who say, are watching it? him don't see it as that. <laughs> but I bet he has a not insignificant portion of his audience who are listening and just yelling at their radio yeah that they're angry with him and that's yeah. that is a form i i think it was a, it's a form of entertainment and in fact i used to do that with his show for a while yeah and then i realized you know what i don't think i like this yeah <laughs> i i've i've increasingly started i think it's it's a problem because you don't want to i think with the way that you consume information through the internet you can filter out everything that isn't your exact opinion which isn't good because I don't think you should only, you should engage with what other people say and think. But also there's another end of it where there's a whole group of people in England who deliberately read articles by newspapers like the Daily Mail, which is kind of our, sort of politically is our Fox News, and they read them deliberately to rile themselves up. And mm. that, I think, is unhealthy as well. It's not healthy. <laughs> I, do, I do think it's good to get the opposite view yeah to, so you're not just listening to your same reinforced point of view all the time yeah. but yeah but totally but there are always uh, there are you know in spite of what the fox what, news is not the opposite exactly. view it's, it's not it's, the opposite it's, view. It's, it's, it's sort of a propaganda yeah, ex- opposite view exactly like it's the um you know it's the kind of equivalent of um there's somebody other line about he doesn't want to grow up to be a man walking around these streets holding a carrier bag screaming about socialism. Like, that is as much representative of a sort of liberal perspective as Fox News. Fox News is the hysterical screaming end of the conservative politics in America. And similarly, in England, we have a huge number of people who are reasonable and conservative. And you can listen to them and engage with them, be interested in what they have to say. And even if you disagree with something, you can still respect the integrity of what they're saying. Whereas the problem is, with things like the Daily Mail, it's not you know, it's, it's just screaming for screaming's sake. It's just hysteria. Yeah, well, that's... I find that politics in America has turned into 
argue, argument. Yeah. It's just an argument. Yeah, yeah. And it's an argument for entertainment purposes. That's right, yeah. And that, that a lot of politicians even have lost sight of the idea that, hey, when you're done calling the other guy a dumbass, yeah. you, you guys actually have to solve a problem. Yeah. You know, it's not, you're not just putting on a show, well, that was great, I got you good. <laughs> yeah, it's theater. It's just pure theater at this point. But yeah. Nothing's, get, nothing's being resolved from it. Like, if you watch too much of The West Wing, you can uh, get too idealistic a view of how politics can be conducted. Because in that show, it's always, you know, there's always some reasonable conservative and they always have this kind of high-minded debate about ideas that advances the conversation. But Well, and I, and I think it was, I think when they were making The West Wing, it was already bad. But yeah. now it's even beyond now, that. Yeah, it's now, you know? it's, now The West Wing is like science fiction. I mean, at the time, when it first came out, it seemed implausible. But now it's like watching Star Wars or something. Like, it seems <laughs> I think so right. far away yeah. from reality. I think you're right. Just because, when, well, at least what we've got going on in the States now with whatever they're calling the Tea Party. Yeah. You know, they switched to the Tea Party. The tea, they were the Tea Baggers for a while. And then they, <laughs> were uh, they the Tea Baggers? Yeah, they called them Tea Baggers at first because, because of the Tea Party. Yeah. But then someone, then someone told them that, look, that's also another thing <laughs> that we call Tea Bagging. And so they, they, they said, okay, oh, like, man. Yeah, well, we're not that. I didn't know that. That's yeah. absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah, that was, that was, that was a good moment. It sort, of, <laughs> it sort of was a quiet moment, whereas a comedian, you just saw it happen. No one tell them. Yeah. yeah, it was for a while. It was like, just let them keep saying like, teabagging. Yeah, just let them keep saying teabagging. God, I never realized that. They were called the teabaggers. Yeah, but they're, but they're almost... Uh, ostracizing themselves or ostracizing the rest of the Republican Party now sure. to the point. Well, I was saying the other night. I, th- I think we, you know we could we could easily have a, our party split into two parties. You yeah, know? we could have the uh, tea, tea Party baggers, and yes. then we could have you know the traditional conservatives, and so yeah. then we could have the middle middle uh, liberals like Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I yeah. guess she would describe herself that way. Yeah, and then and then we could have the socialist Sanderses. I don't think these are not... These are just uh, placeholder names. <laughs> the Socialist Sanders. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be... Do, you do love, uh, with your sports teams, to have, like, mascots. So maybe it might be nice. We do, them. but don't you have that? No, not really. Not really. We're so, trying... right, I guess Manchester United. That's Yeah, just Manchester Man- United. Yeah, I mean, they, people would call them the Red Devils, but... Just on their own? Or yeah, do, just are, on... there, are there logos... Do they have a logo with the devil on it? The logo has a red devil on it. Okay. So there is an element of it, but mostly there's like the odd club, like West Ham are called the Hammers. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's the odd club that has a kind of nickname, but the official name of the clubs would always just be Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester City. You know, we don't don't fully have, we haven't fully embraced the, uh, we have animal mascots. So like Arsenal have Gunnosaurus Rex. Who is uh, a giant a dinosaur with gonorrhea? Dinosaur with gonorrhea, a sexually fetid dinosaur <laughs> yeah. that stands on the side. They're dangerous. They're doubly dangerous. <laughs> Don't fuck with them. And if you Either want, way. if you want to have, uh, if you want to kill five minutes on the internet in an excellent way, there is a Tumblr of uh, that's just pictures of people like during like you know like on Remembrance Sunday for this this which is our big like like Veterans Day. It's our big uh-huh. War Memorial Day. Uh, the first game after that's played after Remembrance Sunday, or the nearest games played to Remembrance Sunday, there'll be a minute silence. 
where both the teams stand and they have a minute where they all... And if you want to go on a great Tumblr, there is a Tumblr somewhere where you can watch, see photos of the mascots commemorating the minute silence. And it is absolutely sublime because the mascots stand on the end of the line and bow their foam heads in solemn celebration of the war dead. And they stand on the end and it is just one of the funniest things. I'd say some genius on the internet must have spotted this at some point and found that it was a thing and then has just anthologised all of these photos of, like, Gunnosaurus Rex facing the floor oh, thinking man. about the First World War. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it, is, uh, it is really worth your time. <laughs> yeah, well, I, don't, I don't think we're going to pause now and do it, but we're doing that after this. Oh, yeah. That's what we'll do after this. Oh man, yeah, all of ours, but they're not all animals. Our, our, ours aren't all animals, you know. We've got some pretty. I, I don't know what you. Call, I guess it's racism against oh, our yeah. Native American. Washington, isn't it? Yeah, well, they're trying to get rid of the Native American ones, and yeah. and the, like the Atlanta Braves had a, you know, they had just a crate like a cartoon. They made them. They the thing is they didn't make it seem savage. They made it seem silly. Right, which okay. was just terrible. But then also, there's Trojans. You know, there's the USC's college in Southern California. They're Trojans. And they're, they're Trojans. You know, they have the big helmet with the brush on it, and so that's so Trojan we have that. also a brand of condom as well. Yeah, but they're but they're but they're named after the same yeah, okay. Trojans. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The thing is, uh, except what is it now? The Greeks were the ones with the horse. No, it was the Trojans, the Trojans with the horse. horse. Yeah, the Trojans yeah, yeah. with the horse. Yeah. But they always say beware of Greeks bearing gifts. But it's really the Trojans you got to watch out for. It was the Trojans you got to watch yeah. out for. They were the they were they were the guys. You know, you don't want to accept a Trojan horse. That's basically the message of it's. It's a very. It doesn't really travel into modern times. I can't. And it's I can't, cert- it's not. Re- yeah, go ahead. I'm very rarely offered a horse. Is what I would say as a gift. No, me neither. <laughs> me neither. But it's funny that condoms, which you're trying to not let the intruders in, are modeled after a thing that actually helped the intruders get in. It's one of the worst pieces of branding of all time. Yeah, now that it's we're talking one, about it. It's one of the worst pieces of branding. It took us a while time. to get to the bottom of it. Unless um, this is a, maybe a conspiracy by the Catholic Church, and it's going to turn out that they own Trojan condoms, and they've been pricking all of the Trojan condoms, and none of them has ever worked. That's my conspiracy theory. I have no basis for it. It's a great... It's a, if it was really happening... I would love it. It would be absolutely But I incredible. think that the sales of Trojan condoms would have gone down Yeah, people would have spotted it by now. People would have spotted it by now. Like, who keeps using those? They don't work. <laughs> These are all my kids. They've all got Trojan names. <laughs> yeah. Here's Helen and Agamemnon right now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, so, speaking of... I guess talking about politics, what's what's the thing... What's 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 eating you right now? What's What's the, what's the solution? I don't know. I really don't. I have no. I'm never. I have no solutions. We, Britain at the moment is in a, a kind of. We're we're in a sort of strange period of political wrangling because we are about to have a vote in uh, June about whether we remain part of the European Union. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, and it is an interesting one because your money's not involved, no, so you don't have that to unravel if you decided to out. Exactly. We, we've got a slightly confusing arrangement where we're not part of the euro currency, so we still have the pound, but we are part of the European Union, which means that we get we have you have open borders, open borders, and we have and you know if we go to Europe, we'd have to 
you know we can travel there on our British passports and it's you know it's really easy and also from a sort of trade perspective we you know there's no kind of tariff so it allows free trade between European countries um, so from my perspective I feel like we have a pretty sweet deal because we get a lot of the benefits of being in the EU but we don't have to subsidize Greece so when the Greek economy collapsed everyone else who was in the euro had to kind of yeah, you're not in. financially hooked to the like, mountain climbers hooked. who are yeah, going to be yeah. dragged into the crevasse. <laughs> but on the other hand, though, you wind up, and this is, I guess, the problem, is anybody who can get into Europe then and get a passport, anybody who's got a European passport yeah. can come to your country. Like, yeah, yeah. If, if Greeks decide, well, this is terrible, I want to move to London, they can do it. Yeah, they can do it. And um, but there are... Uh, you know, it's not I, we, as in every country, we massively overstate the problems of immigration. Well, in the United States, anybody yeah. who lives in whatever terrible state you want to name, I, I'm not going to right now, but I'm sure everybody listening can think of a terrible <laughs> state. You've got to go back and we, work a road trip. We've got to have some terrible state that you could imagine where you yeah. just be like, wouldn't it be great if we could stop those people from moving to California or wherever? <laughs> but on the other hand, like you say, it's not that many. It's not that big a deal. And also the people who are angriest about it tend to live in areas with no immigrants. I don't know whether it's like this in America. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The people who are most afraid of foreigners are the people who have the least have no contact. contact. The people in, like, there's no immigrants in Kent, for example. And the people in kind of rural Kent are the angriest about it. Whereas people in London, you know, it, white English people who grow up in London uh, understand that it's not... It's not a huge problem. Well, how is it being sold as, like, this is why this is a good idea to, to, to leave the EU? What, well, what are we, they saying? If they're playing just so on, we just won't have dirty foreigners coming yeah, in? Yeah, we won't have one? dirty foreigners come in. We'll have, uh, we'll, we, we have a funny relationship with Europe. We've always had a funny relationship with Europe because we sort of don't consider ourselves part of it. We sort right. of, we well, sort of got an inherent mistrust of the continent. Um, and um, and so you know we're this weird island nation, and we have this kind of island nation mentality, and uh, and so we do. We always have had this kind of base level hostility to Europe that goes across the right and the left of British politics. So uh -huh. it's it, there, there. There is this kind of the people who are campaigning for us to leave are sort of preying on or playing on this long standing mistrust that English people have of Europeans. Uh huh. And so there, but the problem is that there are there are interesting reasons to leave the EU in terms of if you're a person of my political persuasion, in terms of you know it's been used to sort of prop up corporatist self interest. It's kind of being used to funnel the EU TTIP, has yeah TTIP legislation through, which could What's be TTIP. Very oh, that's the trans. It's this weird yeah no? the transatlantic trade agreements. That would, oh, see, because we've got the Trans-Pacific one, where, right. where they're going to make governments subsidiary to corporate exactly. arrangements. That's yeah. exactly, and that's the same thing. We've got the same problem with those. But there's a lot of good reasons to stay. And also, as a continent, Europe spent 100 years trying to blow itself up. And the fact that we're now economically interdependent means that, is, I think, is broadly a good thing. Because it means that you can't... The whole reason that the EU was created was because we had two wars within the space of 60 years, which where Europe tried to kind of destroy itself. And so the idea is that by making each, ourselves dependent on each other, 
we would be less likely to try and blow the other countries to kingdom come. Right. And that's, so that was, those are that's World War One and World War Two. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it was that was that was the the double whammy. Yeah. Well, but to to me from the outside, it kind of seemed like it looked like oh they're trying to create this United States of mm-hmm. Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. But without having there be a central European government, and then yeah. the global economic crisis or happened, yeah. and it was like well, these different countries with different fiscal policies had a common currency, yeah. and they realized, oh, if we don't have any common regulation, yeah. then we're always going to get dragged down by these other people that we're roped to. Yeah, exactly. And so the reality check now is like, okay, well, if you're going to stay in the EU, then you have to let your national government be subsidiary at least on some topics to that's, this to this that's the thing, European like government there, right? there needs to be there has to be wider regulation we've sort of got uh, we've gone halfway between you know just being a continent and being a federalized super state like something on the scale of america and yeah yeah but it, uh, but it seemed like that was the everybody who wanted there to be an eu Kind of glossed over and said, "Yeah, well, no, but we yeah. won't have we won't have a national, you yes. know, an international body of governing over the top of it." Yeah, and to me, it felt like, well, if you agree to this, you're eventually going to have to create that, yeah. or you're going to wind up where where Britain is now, where they're saying, "Look, we're going to leave." So if they stay, then that's going to be the beginning of. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, very possibly, but I, and I think that that. The pro- the problem was that there was supposed to be loads of um, conditions on you joining the euro, there was and, uh, and you uh, joining the EU. So your economy had to be in a certain at a certain level. And the problem is, as with a lot of things in the financial world, between the years of about nineteen eighty three and two thousand and eight, no one really checked up on 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 it. And in Greece, the the Greek economy was complete nonsense. Because people were retiring really early, and uh, the government was barely collecting any tax, and it was just being propped up on credit. And when the credit vanished in 2008, the bottom fell out of the country. And that's mismanagement by the Greek economy and by the Greek government. And that's the Greek government really screwed their people over. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, but what what I've read a little bit about the crisis was each, all the countries did their own version of their own idea of the best shenanigans that could be pulled. Yeah. You know, in America, we all, everybody got sold a house for twice what it was worth yeah. and given a mortgage based on whatever salary they said they fantasized that they could make. I didn't realize this. In Britain, people were being sold 110% mortgages. So for a while, banks were giving people the deposit and were lending them 110% essentially. Of so you get your house and you get this cash in the bank. For buying the house. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of the... Uh, uh, were we allowed to talk about something that was in your show? Yeah, yeah. The DVDs, the uh, um, American Pie DVDs. How yeah, the, yeah, how, yeah, yeah, yeah. How all eight of the movies are more... That's right, Less yeah. expensive than just the three mainstream movies. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I just I found two box sets, one with all eight, and the other one with just four the ones with the four films of the famous people and the ones with the four films were, were worth three pounds more than the ones with all eight of the movies in them and I just I thought that that was so there's just something so perfect about the nonsense maths of that well banks I've heard of banks well obviously you put your savings in the bank now and the, I've, sometimes they 
tell you, like, you know, if you deposit more money, you're eligible for point. <laughs> Eight percent interest, in yeah. It's just like point eight percent interest. <laughs> I mean, what are you drinking that you think that that's a thing that you can tell me like it's great? It's. Did you see the big short? Yeah, man, it really made you want to put a brick through some windows. <laughs> well, the guys who are the guys who really know what's going on. I mean, as is pointed out in the movie, yeah, are guys who are just getting rich off of it. Yeah, you know, they're not they're not really heroes out to yeah. point out how terrible this is well the one guy that, that, that sort of was portrayed as kind of trying to do yeah not the worst thing well the interesting thing that I thought about because I read the book as well and the book has information about this woman who had made all of those calls and was and had instead of trying to make money off the back of it she had tried to warn the government that this stuff was happening and everyone was like yeah she's crazy and then the crash happened and she became this kind of like go to pundit because she had been talking about it for years as something that could as something that could happen. Wow. It's just it's just kind of incredible that like we it just makes you realise that people are the people who we think we put our trust in are maybe not either not the smartest people or do not have our best best interests at heart. Well, it's everybody went to high school with somebody. You know, it's all the dummies that you were in high school with who've all grown up. I mean, I feel like that's the reality that you realize at some point when you're an adult is like all these people you thought we knew what you were doing are analogous to the same idiots that you knew when you were children. You know? I remember watching a documentary about The Simpsons years ago and the interviewer was trying to press Mike Scully, who was like the showrunner on it, but he, oh, the, the, um, the interview was trying to press Mike Scully, the showrunner on it, on a sort of central message that The Simpsons carried or something. And he, he was like, there's no, re- it's such a big, diffuse show that it's hard to pin down anything. But he was like, if there was one message, it would be your teachers and your religious leaders and your political leaders may not have your best interests at heart. And I just, I really love that. And I think... I, I saw that interview when I was about 12 or something and as I've got older I feel like I feel like I think about that line once every month maybe just I'm reading something I just remember Mike Scully describing that well yeah it's funny how you know oftentimes comedians get described as being cynics yeah but I feel like look we could all do with a little bit of exactly yeah. what you just said like yeah, hey exactly w- just hypothetically what if <laughs> these guys have some interests that don't align with yours that they're you're back channeling to yeah. try and achieve yeah exactly. what if not that they're criminals but what if they just have some agenda <laughs> what if there's some yeah because you know we don't want to go down the road that ends up with you know, like David Icke, who's this guy from England who thinks that uh, the whole world is run by... Oh, he's the lizard guy. He's the lizard guy. Yeah, I forgot he broke an America. He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's the Beatles of conspiracy theorists. He's really gone global. Well, I'm, I've always been fantasized with the, guy, the guys who have these nutty conspiracy oh, yeah. ideas. Have you ever read um, uh, John Ronson's book, which is called Them? Uh, no. Adventures with Extremists. It's great. And uh, it spends a lot of time with... Um, Alex Jones, the guy who, like, the American guy who... I know, was he's trying, down in Texas. Yeah, he? and he, yeah. Was try, he was trying to expose, expose the Bilderberg group. And John Ronson is this amazing British journalist who li- lives in New York now, and he's... We have him... I hear him on public radio. That's right, yeah. Time. he's Yeah, he's always on This American Life and stuff. And he's, he's really funny, and he's a sort of... He's got a very... 
he's very dry and cynical, but he's open-minded enough that he doesn't just approach the subjects he interviews as from the perspective of this person is insane. And so his work is always much more interesting than yeah, yeah, journalists yeah. who are trying to expose something. Because he always comes at it from the perspective of, I'm a person, this person is a person, let's see if we can try to connect, even when they come from an extreme place. And so that, his, that them is a really fascinating study of conspiracy theorists and people who operate on the political extreme. It's a really good book. It's very yeah, good. I read one of his book of essays about, it wasn't about conspiracy theories, I can't remember which one it was, but when you listen to him talk and the way he relates to people, as you say, he's just so soft-spoken and he really wants to know what they think. And yeah. He draws them out. And then even once he's got them all completely drawn out, he's very circumspect about his, like, hey, maybe yeah. this person yeah. isn't a person that we should all be listening yeah. to. Yeah. He wrote a brilliant book last year um, about public shaming in Twitter and social media. And um, it was a, it's a really, really brilliant, sort of thrillingly kind of of its moment book it really feels like one of the most relevant and interesting things I've read about the way that we communicate with each other and uh, what then happened after that was he was sort of publicly shamed on Twitter was he shamed <laughs> he was, for the book? yeah it's, it's because so he, because he didn't shame the people who had been shamed that he was interviewing or? I, I mean I think that it was because he tried to find causes where the mobs in question were people who were people like us sort of liberal Supposedly, you know, arty left left leaning people who had you know gone into this kind of mob mentality. It's you know there's we, there's a whole other book, and we 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 know about right wing trolling, and we talk about it quite a lot. But for, I think from his perspective, he thought it would be more interesting to look at causes where supposedly sensible, reasonable people had adopted this kind of witch hunt mentality. But because of that supposedly sensible people then tried to witch hunt him and it was almost perfect because it just showed it illustrated everything that was in his book because because it was really examples of people who thought that they were by going on the attack yeah they were being politically correct that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and it was it's it, it is the um the new edition the paperback has a kind of what happened after the publication of the hardback and it's oh, interesting. It, it's really good. If you it, it, again, if you haven't read it, I would seek it out. And it's good to seek out the paperback edition because it has that extra fallout. material. Yeah, yeah, that extra material, which is re- it's really cool. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's. I feel like what's going on with that, and we were talking about it last night too, because there's all there's just so much political correctness and trigger warnings, and everybody's got a cause and and it's like i have so, so i just feel like i gotta keep my sh- mouth shut yeah, half the yeah. time because i don't want to get in anybody else's way of their right to be a person but i think it's people just really want to express self-righteous anger i think that there's yeah. a real urge that people have to like finally i can use this that i've got inside myself this anger for yeah. good and and also people love to be cops. They love the idea of like I'm I'm the person who's in charge yeah. of making this right, and I'm the I'm justified. I've got a license to kill. But also, it's because so many conversations are happening. You know, there's a lot of great things about social media and Twitter, but 140 characters is not enough space to say something meaningful about a really complicated subject. It just really isn't. And also, 
type the written word doesn't yeah. lend itself to any kind of sarcasm. Yeah, sarcasm and you know, yeah. and and all t- so there's all kinds of satire that people are then taking seriously that then they're on the attack and then the person who's trying to defend themselves seems weak because they're on the defensive and, yeah, and that yeah. makes the person who was on the attack feel more justified about <laughs> yeah. what they were doing. But also people are, you know, it's 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 hard to express a complicated idea in that short amount of time but it is easy to just go fuck you like that's really easy right except really... they never say fuck you they always <laughs> yeah. say racist yeah yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah sexist yeah. homophobe but it's just it's so much easier to do to just boil it down to one word than say hey i thought that this was this wasn't cool because of this this and this and that's the that's the joy of stand up that's why i love doing stand up and why it, that's the real privilege of stand-up, I feel, is that we get to really expand on something and we can go into, like, really interesting and problematic avenues and kind of work your way out of them. Like, it's fun to watch someone like... That's the joy of watching someone like Bill Burr or Dave Chappelle burrow themselves into this hole and then justify it. And then by the end, you've completely come around to their way of thinking. Uh-huh. Like, that, the Chappelle routine about... Um, uh, how old is fifteen, really? Which is it's just incredible. I don't know that routine, it, but and I, it just it's it, it's it, it, I wouldn't do it justice. In yeah, trying yeah, to break no, down I wouldn't want you to. But I wouldn't it's watch so it. it's so funny, and it starts from a position where your instinct is to go, "What the hell is he talking about?" And then by the end of the routine, you go, "100 percent, I agree with everything you said." <laughs> I I would recommend you know show show recommends here in Mel- Melbourne. I'd recommend a local guy. Well. Uh, who was I telling you about before? Zoe, Zoe Coombs-Marr. Zoe, Zoe Coombs-Marr, her show is great, yeah. which I think you're going to go and see. But also this guy, Nick Cody. Yeah. Have you seen Nick? I've, I've not seen Nick's show this year, but I saw Nick's his, last show. The end of his show has a couple of jokes in it that, as a comedian, they're like the gymnastic equivalent of a neck breaker. <laughs> you know, it's just awesome. The end of his show is, I th- in my opinion, is pretty, pretty, pretty great. Um but so this is a question we're kind of I, I don't want to drag out your whole day. Um, but I am curious to ask this question and I and not to put you on the spot, but I feel like all comedians have to deal with this at some point. You know, when you say something that the crowd then feels like, hey, I disagree with that. And they want to retort and talk back to you. And then the question is kind of basically just a thoughtful answer to the how how come you get to get on stage and give your opinion and yeah. we have to be quiet in the audience. Yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky one to balance out. I think that um, in, I think that that's the that's the one of the fun things about doing an hour versus doing a club set because I think in a club set in a in a comedy club environment where it could get out of hand really quickly and it could get away from you really quickly, you have to be really on top of any disruption from the crowd and you have to be able to deal with it quickly and move on but in a longer form you can maybe let you can let people engage with you and i think it depends you can you know instinctively in seconds whether this is someone who is going to have something interesting to contribute even if it's in contradiction to what you're saying right. or someone who is just trying to stir shit up and I feel like I've, I've had both of those things in the last year, particularly talking about some of the things that I've talked about on stage. I've had a couple of moments where you can feel someone who is just trying to, you know, 
just trying to stir shit up. Undermine. They want to just yeah, sink, they just they want want to sink the ship of the show. You've got to trust your instincts as a comedian that we've all spent years honing to sniff out someone who is just trying to be a dick and someone else who is just trying to express their opinion, which yeah, the whole point of my show is that we can all say what we want and it's great and we should be nicer and kinder to each other and allow disagreement to happen. And so I can't, in that scenario, then be like, shut the fuck up if someone's being reasonable. So it's, but, and that's fun. It's fun to have, I had somebody at a show uh, about three weeks before I came here where somebody was like, uh, you know, I was talking about how I sometimes feel like, this is just not part of this show. It's just uh, something that I'm interested in. I was talking about how culturally we sort of let rich white men off the hook and I was trying to I was trying to bring because I the, in Britain there was a reparations paid to slave owners after slavery was abolished like our government to slave owners our government compensated slave owners oh because oh abolished. now you don't have slaves anymore yep. so that's going to make your world tough for you bailout package oh, <laughs> oh. and so oh. and it was the largest governmental bailout until oh. the 2008 bailout of the banking sector and what well that 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 was that that better have been hundreds of years ago. How long ago? Was oh, that? slavery oh, was abolished in Britain in the early nineteenth century. Yeah, but the amount of money is eye watching because it was eighteen billion pounds. So, oh my god, yeah, eighteen billion pounds worth of bailout. Yeah, and it's like, and so I was trying to talk about that, and I was trying to talk about how it, sometimes we culturally, like, if you're a rich white guy, whatever you've done somebody will find a way to get you out of it. And the, this guy from the audience was took issue with me using the term rich white men. Now, unfortunately, he was, you know, quite a posh-sounding white guy. So the audience didn't have a huge amount of sympathy for him. Well, it's obvious his, <laughs> his stake in the game is like, hey, yeah. I'm one of the good rich white yeah, guys. Yeah, exactly. But he was... But the thing is, uh, within a second, I was like, oh, I don't need to shut this guy down. Uh, he's not... He's he's expressing himself, and he wasn't shouting. He actually put his hand up. Yeah. <laughs> so like, immediately you go, which is kind of in his favor that he's maybe not a rich white. Yeah, but guy. He's, yeah. He's, he's. I don't think he's he's one of the bad guys. And so in that instant, it was interesting and it was funny. You know, in, in the that show, moment, right? In the it's show, adding, it's adding. To yeah, the it was adding the to the show, and it was interesting to you know have somebody contradict you and then it, try and have a kind of reasonable discussion with them. But you can always tell the difference between that guy and the guy that's, like, just trying to fuck you over. And when the guy's trying to fuck you over, you can just, like, nip it in the bud. Yeah, well, because, look, it's your show. You know, it's not... That's yeah. sometimes how I feel if if somebody in the crowd isn't liking it. It's like, look, I'm sorry that you're not yeah, yeah. loving this, but I don't have another show that then I switch <laughs> to because uh, you don't like it. Yeah, right. My, old, my last show opened with me basically saying I hope you enjoy it and if you don't I'm really sorry and like just apologising to people in advance because the brilliance of comedy is that some people just don't like it some people just don't like some people just don't like what you do and the quicker you make yourself okay with that I think the better at just going oh some people don't like it it's not the end of the world right right what's your favourite festival that you do well, you hate to say, I know. I hate to say, there's something so great about Melbourne for English and British comics because 
we this is a show that we know it, and it's a beautiful city and it's a you know it's a, it feels so relaxed and it, you know it's you know you go to the beach and we're bringing the show to an end so you have this kind of comfort with the material and we really looked after as international actor at the festival but i just i have this terrible relationship with edinburgh where it's like edinburgh's like a terrible like lover that i just can't seem to shake shake <laughs> and it's like this lover is not always good to me yeah you're in a dysfunctional relationship i've developed i think it's stockholm syndrome i've developed mm-hmm. stockholm syndrome with the edinburgh festival and um i've done it every year for the last this will be my 11th year in a row I, I, this will be my fifth solo stand-up show in a row but even before that i was going to edinburgh every year i've been going to edinburgh every year since i was i turned 21 in edinburgh and i'm 30 now and i've been i've been there every year and um i just hate it and love it at the same time i those two it's it, it's it's hard and it's brutal. No one looks after you. Even if you're an international act, you arrive there. Here, you arrive, somebody meets you off the plane. They drop you in the hotel. Everyone is really nice to you there. If you're an international act, you arrive at Edinburgh. They're like, fuck you, mate. We don't give a shit. And You've got to arrange your own accommodation. You've got to arrange your own accommodation. You've got to do everything. Do you hire yourself. your own venue and all that? And... No, I mean, I do it through. I have producers now yeah, yeah. that kind of handle all that stuff. But when I first started, we did everything. You lo- it's really interesting because you learn how to do everything as a comedian. Well, so that is one like, of the cool, cool things about it. Yeah. yeah. You have to, like, you arrange the venue. You arrange your accommodation. You arrange your own publicity. You, I mean, when I, I did a sketch show with my friend in 2010 11, and we used to have to email journalists and be like, please, can you come and see our show and review it so that we can try and get some people in? And it's brutal, but I've learned everything in Edinburgh. And so do you have to hire staff to take the money at the tickets? And to, no, uh, it, you, to... the venue hire you pay covers the staff who handle all the ticket stuff. The tickets and the sound yeah, and the, the lights and, and all that. Yeah, the tickets and the sound and the lights. Yeah. That's part of the thing that you, the thing yeah. that you pay for. But I've learned everything. I would say about 90% of what I've learned as a comedian I've learned at Edinburgh. The, the interesting th- thing to me that I would say about the festival now that I'm seeing here is that the venues are so different and varied. And, yeah. and you know, they, they go from like almost a hotel broom closet yeah. up to a theater or a thing that looks like a theater, but it's really, you know, a conference center or something. I, I've, been, I've, I've been in one venue in Edinburgh that it was a, it was a nightclub. And it, um, the lighting rig was set up so that you couldn't see the middle of the stage. So if anyone walked into the middle of the stage, you couldn't, you just couldn't see the yeah. middle. Of it. And we had to get our friend to come and re-rig the entire lighting in this venue. Like, luckily, he knew how to do it. Um, and just... another, another year was a cave. It was an actual cave. And on day two of the, like an ancient, one of those old ancient Edinburgh caves. You were doing your show in a cave? In a cave. And on day three, the uh, roof leaked. And so we just, when we came into our venue, there was just a bucket in the middle of the venue that was just dripping down. So we couldn't seat people on one side. Near of the, the room. near the bucket. Yeah, because they couldn't, because they would, you know, probably have got malaria from the pooling. Right, because it's seeping water. down through all of this <laughs> it's ancient disgusting rock. disgusting rock water just dripping down. It was not a good gig, Jake. No, it doesn't sound because good. Because the audience were just staring at the bucket. 
But it, you, you <laughs> that can, is a good title for a show. <laughs> stare at the staring bucket. at the bucket. Yeah, it sounds like an an old English expression for facing death. Like, yeah. how's Jared? Where well, he's staring at the bucket, mate. Like, it's got that sort of gnarly nineteen fifties fucking grim English vibe. But yeah, so you, I but I've learned everything that I know. What small amount I know about doing comedy, I learned in Edinburgh. So, I I would say, depending on what day you ask me, my favourite festival is either Edinburgh or anything other than Edinburgh. <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Are you ready? I, I like to end with a high five. Let's end with a high five. Nice. Okay. Solid. Now I'm gonna. Now I think I remember how to push the button. 